Again, at verse 1, we read the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi not only represents the final book in the order of the minor prophets, but it is also the final book in terms of the chronology of Israel in the Old Testament. And I have chosen to take a break from our series in Peter. First Peter will pick it up next week because of something that uh, really touched my heart as I went through this passage and desired very much to share it with you today. As we consider where this book sits in the history of Israel, it's about a hundred years after they have come back from Babylonian captivity. They have remained under the Medo-Persian rule and Malachi himself prophesies long after Haggai and Zechariah, but also believed and understood is that it's after the time of the prophecies of Ezra and Nehemiah, and here's why. When we get into the book, and as you read through it today, you can do that in your uh, leisurely reading, we find that the temple has been rebuilt, the sacrifices are being observed, and those things that were absent uh, in coming back and rebuilding the temple and the walls have now been reestablished. But sufficient time, as I said, a hundred years after their return, sufficient time has elapsed that the influence of Nehemiah has begin, begun to fall off. Nehemiah encouraged the people and brought great spiritual revival to the people as there was something for them to collectively gather and do. And that has begun to wane as that influence has gone away. We don't know the exact date for the writing. We will place it somewhere around 450 to 400 BC. But why that is important to us today is because and we have it on the next screen there, is that God would not publicly speak to his people again through a prophet for 400 years. He would not speak through a prophet until John the Baptist arrives on the scene and says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we might go ahead and assume this morning that if God is going to remain silent for 400 years, then, then the very thing he says last must be very important. And the message that comes to the people of God through the prophet Malachi is a contemporary message. It's, it's a necessary message. It's a message that is needed every bit as much today as it was needed then. Now Malachi brings to the format of his teaching a very unique and interesting style of teaching which is called a dialectical method. 
it's a little different than, say, Jeremiah or Isaiah that would come upon the scene and they would say, thus saith the Lord, and they would just tell them what God wants to tell them. But this dialectical method is different in that on behalf of God, the prophet Malachi, he makes a statement, something that God wants to say. And then... He poses a question on the basis of what the people are thinking about the statement. And then he answers that question. It's a very effective, powerful way to teach. Think about it for a moment. If when we come to try to educate someone and all we do is give them the questions and then the answers right away, we don't ever give them or ourselves an opportunity to grapple, to wrestle with the question itself. And it is so important that that we as Christians do that. A couple Wednesday nights ago, an example is we meet on Wednesdays. If you haven't come, come be with us, but it's uh, an interactive time. We move the chairs and put them in a circle. And we talk about the scriptures and the things of God. And a couple Wednesday nights ago, we were interacting with one another about where was it that Jesus went when he went down to the lower regions and preached to the uh, the souls that were in prison. Was it hell? Was it Hades? What did he actually say? And we, we wrestled with some of those questions because it's good for us to grapple with the questions that God brings. And you see, we tend to remember, maybe you would agree to this, we tend to remember the things that we discover on our own, more so than if an answer is just given to us. And God allows that to take place here with the people of Israel by this dialectical method. Now, the spiritual environment in which Malachi arrives on the scene is... The people of Israel are beginning to come undone. They are unwinding spiritually. They knew some of the promises of God that a Messiah would come in the future, that the land was to be a land of milk and honey, but those promises weren't being filled immediately. And apathy began to set in, again, a hundred years after the revival of Nehemiah. Apathy began to set in. They were just kind of going to go with the flow. And they didn't allow those promises that once excited them so much to have a place and a part in their everyday life. So thinking that God isn't going to keep his promises, they began to lose their zeal for God. They began to lose their zeal to serve God. And I think it's not hard to now cross the bridge into that sometimes this happens to many Christians. At first, when they come to the Lord, they're so excited about the word and and God's work in their heart and and that God has promised Jesus is coming back. And they, they live in the shadow of that each day with an excitement. 
And then it, it doesn't happen right away and the weeks turn into months and the months turn into years and the years turn into decades. And before you know it, someone finds themselves kind of back in the world, going with the flow. Oh, it's, to be sure, a sanctified version of what they were, but they've lost their zeal for God. They've, they've lost their zeal to serve God. And this goes on all the time. Quite often in the life of Christians today, Paul warned about it in Romans chapter 13. Partially up on the screen, Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome and he said, and do this, verses 11 through 14, knowing the time, what time is it? That now is high time to wake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Yeah, we haven't seen the church raptured. We haven't seen Christ set his foot on, on the mount and begin to reign. But it's closer than when it was yesterday. And it's closer than when it was years ago. We are marching toward an eminent promised return of Christ in Scripture. Paul goes on to say to the Roman Christians, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk soberly or properly in as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness and not in lewdness and lust and not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And thus, the book of Malachi is a, a lot like the book of James in the New Testament. When you read James, and some of you have studied James, James is very direct. And so Malachi also is very direct as a mouthpiece for God, that through Malachi, God has something specific that he wants to communicate to his people. And someone once put it this way, the book of Malachi is like God picks up a megaphone to shout to the people who have fallen asleep spiritually. And sometimes it takes a megaphone to wake Christians up from their falling asleep. And if you do choose to read the entire book later today or through this week, what you will find is that there are three things that uh, permeate the book about the people of God is that number one, there was an absence of real reverence for God. They had lost a real reverence for the one true God spiritually. Oh, they were bringing sacrifices, but they were polluted sacrifices. They had begun to mix it with the pagan sacrifices of the pagans around them. Socially, they had taken on complete disregard for the institutions of God and specifically marriage and the importance of the family. And materially, they had begun to trust in money and in their possessions. And it revealed that they simply were just throwing trinkets at God. They were actually not giving God what he was due 
And they were, in fact, robbing God. There's an acronym that I'd like us to think about today uh, that kind of explains the condition of the Israeli people at this time in history. And the acronym is simply this, uh, CD, okay? CD. Now, what does CD mean? Well, again, I'm posing a question, letting you grapple with it for a moment. Because CD has several meanings, right? Uh, Back in the day, it was a cassette disc. Remember, you used to put them in and they'd go... And the music could start playing, right? And then, all of a sudden, the industry came out with the compact disc. The CD. Oh, my goodness. And revolution happened to the the listening and music industry. CD also represents a form of investment. There are... Perhaps people even in this listening audience or those of you that may be watching at home, thank you for letting us into your living room, that you have CDs set aside. They're they're forms of investment in which you're hoping to see your money grow. But what's important to us today about that acronym and important to this study of the people of Israel has to do with what I would call casual disobedience. Casual disobedience because they had become casually affiliated to the things that God had commanded. They were casually disobedient to the laws of Moses, to the covenant that God had made with them. Remember when they came into the land even prior to their captivity, uh, Moses sent the priest up on top of Mount Gerizim, and as they came to the land, the priest would declare blessings for obedience, Blessings for obedience. And then they would declare cursings for disobedience. Cursings for disobedience. And relatively, the the curse was the absence of blessing. Blessing be obedience. The absence of blessing for disobedience. And you remember, I mean, they... (laughs) They didn't obey back then. They went into exile for 70 years because of their disobedience. And yet God brought them back into the land. They've been back into this land for about 100 years. And they're about to repeat it all over again. They're headed for disaster. And so Malachi comes on the scene. And he warns them to take God's word and his commands seriously. And so he begins in verse 2. Draw your attention. I have loved you, says the Lord. So there's the statement. Then, on behalf of God, the prophet poses the question. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And God poses that question on the basis of what he knows they're thinking about the statement that he's made. I I have loved you. And they're thinking, well, how have you loved us? 
And so he answers the question in the following section of verse 2. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Says the Lord, we read this together. Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. And so this pattern emerges throughout the book of of Malachi's dialectical method. A statement, then a question posed about that statement on the basis of what God knows God's people are thinking, and then an answer to the question. Now, why that is noteworthy and extremely important to us today is that in this whole enterprise of the book of Malachi, what God wants to do and what he begins with is declaring his love for them. He knew that they would challenge it. He knew that they would question it and that they were even in that place where they were doubting it and thinking maybe that God doesn't know what's going on in their heart. God goes ahead and tells them, here's what's going on in your heart. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Sometimes we as Christians, we we think just because we didn't say it out loud, God doesn't know what's in our heart. But God sees. He knows what's in our heart. He hears what's in our heart. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart. And the key phrase in all of this is the phrase, in what way? In what way have you loved? In other words, what they're saying or what God knows they're saying in their heart is I can't see any evidence of your love for me in my life. It's a bold challenge because it, it's an affront to the truthfulness of God in his word and God in his nature. It's just shy. It's just this side of calling God a liar. And he knows what's in their heart. He's been patient with them as God has been patient with us. God has been patient with me. He's been patient with you. He knows what's in your heart toward him. And yet the people of Israel, it's as if they're saying to God, you said you love it. Prove it. Prove it. And so God gives them these three proofs in the text. In verse 2, when he says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. His first proof to them is his election of them as his people. His election of them as his people. You remember uh, Jacob and Esau, they were the two twins inside of Rebekah, Isaac and Rebekah, and they were, uh, Rebekah had this whole wrestle going on inside of her. 
Ladies, could you imagine being Rebecca? And so the, the w- babies are wrestling inside there, and she wants to know what's going on, and God says to her, you recall it? God says to her, there are two nations inside of you. And so the younger Jacob is now elected over Esau, the older brother. And in in Hebrew history, that was absolutely contradictory to how things went. It was the older son that would get the blessing, would get everything that was coming. But here the younger son, Jacob, gets the election of God. Why? Because God is not talking about persons. He's not talking about, you know, Jacob I loved and Israel. Esau I hated, he's talking about the nations that would come from them. Because it would be through Jacob that God would fulfill his promises to Abraham, including the bloodline through which the Messiah would come. And it's it's important. Because when God chose to remind them of his election of them as his people, he didn't, he didn't go back to David uh, and Solomon. He didn't go back and say, look how powerful I was in your life during the, the reign of King David. Look how powerful I was in your life during Solomon's reign. No, he goes all the way back to Jacob and says, you are my beloved because of my covenant with you. That true riches, true riches in human history will be yours because you are the recipient of my making a covenant with you. And, and to reinforce that this is not personal, but it's, it's national, look at verse 4 because uh, the, the personal pronouns in verse 4 forward, even though Edom says we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness. The personal pronouns reinforce the fact that God was speaking of nations. And what's also important is that at the time of this writing, the book of Malachi, you know, from from Jacob we get Israel. From Esau we get what? The Edomites. And at the time of this writing, the Edomites were a perennial enemy of Israel. And you look at what God did in in their lives. Israel was brought back to the land of Canaan. Edomites never got brought back to the land of Canaan. They, They were given the land of Edom, which was, by comparison, a much lesser place to go set up, you know, a society. Canaan was this land flowing with milk and honey. Edom was this place that was filled of jackals and wilderness. And that was his second proof to them. His second proof to them was the land that I've given you. The covenant I made with you, number one, my election of you, and the land that I've given you, It was his second proof. And there's a third proof that he gives to them through the the text. 
but also through history, is his preservation of his people Israel. He preserved them for 70 years through their captivity in Babylon. And when he brought them back to the land, as I said just a moment ago, the Edomites didn't come back to the land. And think of this for a moment. Uh, Both were taken away in captivity Uh, Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms. Edom was often referred to as the northern kingdom as well. So all of them were taken away in judgment of the sin that all of them were engaged in. And all of them were captive 70 years. But who was it that came back? Israel came back. And Edom did not come back. And that's also reaffirmed by the fact that how many Edomites have you met lately? None. Because they cease to exist. His election of them, his, the land that he gave them, his preservation of them. And you and I might say this morning, well, why? Why would God do that for one and not do it for another? What was Israel better than, than the Edomites? Was Jacob better than Esau? And, and the fact of the matter is that you say absolutely not. At the time of the, the taking away to captivity, Israel was out sinning, out wickeding everyone. And so you say, well, why then? And the answer has to rest solely because of his choice to place his covenant, his unique covenant of love with them. And the application for us this morning is that they had doubted God's love for them. And he said, you know, in what way have you loved us? And in doubting God's love for them, it was absolutely crazy that they would do that. But in order to get there, They had to completely, listen, completely dismiss all history that they had with God. All history of the love that God had showed them in their life. And any Christian who comes to a place where they're beginning to doubt God's love for them is also in jeopardy of dismissing completely the history of what God has done in their life. Think about their history for a moment. Think about the nation of Israel's history and the evidences that God had given them prior to this. He birthed them into a nation through Abraham. He, yes, they went into bondage in Egypt, but he, what? He redeemed them and delivered them out of that bondage. He supplied them for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness and their wandering was a consequence to their own sin and own disobedience and failure to, you know, to believe God and by faith go forward. And yet he supplied their needs for 40 years. They're taken away into captivity for 70. He brings them back after seven years of captivity. He even moved the heart of pagan kings to write a decree to release Israel to go back to their land. 
He graced them with the ability to rebuild their temple, to rebuild their walls, and on and on and on it goes for over a thousand years. The evidence of God's love for them. And we might ask, how? How does a person, how does a people get to that place when there's been so much evidence in the past where they get to a place where they're almost saying, I don't see any evidence of your love in my life, God. Prove it. How does a person, how does a people get there? There are three things that I'd like to share with you this morning that I believe are are clearly descriptive through scripture and they're even woven into the text if we'll read it. The first thing that comes to the surface is when I don't see God doing the things I think God should be doing. In my life, I think God should be working this way or that way. And and when I don't see him doing what I think he should be doing, then there's the jeopardy of beginning to doubt his love. Again, it's a hundred years after they've come back. The temple is rebuilt, as I said. The walls are rebuilt. Yet, what we should recognize is that um, life in the land of Israel at this time of the writing of the book of Malachi was very hard, very difficult. It wasn't an easy-peasy life. No, it was extremely difficult, extremely hard. And where we cross that bridge into how is this apply in our lives this morning is that sometimes when we come into really hard things through our lives, And we don't see the promises fulfilled right away. We can also begin to judge God's love for us on the basis of the the circumstances around us. And there's, there's a wrong root in that kind of judgment of God's love because nowhere in their history and nowhere in the history of a Christian has God ever promised us a trouble-free life, a trial-free life. And so when, if, not that anyone here has done this, but if a Christian comes into this life and believes that it's going to be all good now, it's going to be all better They bring to that life, whoever that might be, an unbiblical expectation that is rooted in unbiblical truths. Think of it. Think of Abraham's life, David's life, Daniel's life, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Eleven of the twelve apostles died a martyr's death. And think of Jesus himself who said in John 15, 20, he says, Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. In this life, you shall have trial. Paul, 
was trying to strengthen the believers that's recorded for us in the book of Acts, Acts 14.22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying to them, we must, through many tribulations, enter into the kingdom of God. And some, at times, will view hardships as a means by which to judge God's love for them. And so here we are today, asking, am I in that place? Have I started to doubt God because he's not doing something the way that I think he should do it? Israel was guilty of that. The second thing that comes into play, a cause, a reason, is when God isn't doing things when I think he should do them. You see, Israel had come back. And in that return under Nehemiah, there was great revival. There was great repentance. There was a great time of the move of the Spirit in their midst. And it's as though in this question that's in their heart, uh, in what way have you... They're saying, why, didn't you, why don't you recognize the repentances that we once had? Why don't you recognize that we've rebuilt your temple, God? Why don't you recognize that uh, the Messiah was going to come and you haven't brought him, you haven't brought him right away? You're not doing it when I think you should do it, God. But he never promised them he would bring the Messiah right away. He promised them that the Messiah would come in his own perfect time. And that that time that only the Father would choose would be perfect in everyone's life for all of humanity concerned. And so they were bringing that unbiblical expectation into their spiritual life as well. Thirdly, and equally as profound, and it's clear in the passage, is that they had forgotten all that God had done for them in the past. All of God's previous expressions of his love for them. They became blinded to it because they were fixated on what they thought they didn't have in their present situation. Judging God's love for them on the basis of them being fixated on something they, they think they don't have and forgetting all that God has done for them and all what they do have as God's people. Someone uh, reverently gave somewhat of a very lighthearted illustration of this and so I'll repeat it but uh, you know let's let's encapsulate it this way let's say I I want a couch and I, I want a new couch I I'm going to tell myself I need a new couch and so I want this couch so bad but God isn't giving this couch and it's like why isn't God giving me this couch and we get so fixated on the couch that we are not getting that we forget there's a roof over our head, that there's 
running water, that there's indoor plumbing. Why? Because we've forgotten about all that and we're fixated on this thing that I want. And we become so conscious of what we don't have that we forget what we do have. And that, you know what? That's exactly what Satan did with Eve all the way back in the garden when he came to her and he said, has God really said that if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall die? You shall not surely die. In other words, God's holding back something from you. He's, he's not giving you everything he could give you as if God couldn't do what he wanted to do. It's a lie from the pit of hell that God is holding anything back from his people. And he cast doubt into her heart and human history was changed. You know, if you ever get to that place, which many of us do, if not all of us do, uh, there's a solution. There's a solution to that, and it, it comes in a song. Maybe some of you know it. It's called Count Your Blessings. And it goes like this. It goes, when upon life's billows you are tempest and tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings. Every doubt will fly and you will be singing all as the days go by. Now the reason I've chosen to share this with us today is because I was profoundly impacted by the truth in, in these verses as well. And I want us to remember something, that of all the things that Israel was doing wrong at the time, of all the sin that they were involved in, they had polluted the offerings, mixed them with pagan belief systems, they had come to a place where they had absolute disregard for the institutions that God had put in place, uh, marriage, the importance of the family, blatant disregard for it. And though they might have been throwing trinkets at God, it was nothing compared to what God had given them. And they were actually in their hearts and in their reality robbing God of what was due him in spite of all of those wrongs that they were engaged in, God begins by reminding them of his love for them. And for anyone listening today, you know, it doesn't matter what, what sin may or may not still be active in our life or your life or what sin is perhaps even dominating uh, your life or a life. If I lose sight of God's great love for me, I lose the most significant motivation 
for loving him and obeying him. If I lose the reality of that God loves me, I lose the right motivation. There's a true story about a daughter whose mother released her in life to go do whatever she wanted to do. She had raised her under a, a belief system, but when it came time, she, she told that daughter, you know what, go. Go and live your life in, in whatever way you choose to. Gave her complete, complete freedom. And that daughter, as she lived her life, chose to live a life that blessed her mom. Here's why. Because she didn't want to break her heart. She didn't want to break her heart. Love is the hardest thing to sin against. Oh, we can sin against law. Tell me what I'm supposed to do, and I'll say, no, I'm not going to do that. But love, it's a profound truth and a profound statement. As we wind up this morning, I want you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 5. Turn to the right to Romans chapter 5. Because there in Romans 5, we find a precious and timeless truth about God's love for you and me. Verse 8, if you want to read it with me, Romans 5 verse 8 says this, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And within that verse, I would like to draw your attention to two letters. Two letters within the word demonstrate. Because what's important is those, those two letters are not E-D. It's not as if God demonstrated at one point in time how much he loves you, how much he loves me. And if you missed that demonstration, oh, you missed it, you know, sorry for you. But no, it's, it's E-S, God demonstrates, which means the action of God's demonstration of love is active, it's constant, it's ongoing. All that's required is for you and I to, to look at it, to recognize it. And the Christian life, beloved, it is the point of this whole you know, half hour together, 45 minutes, is that the Christian life is to be lived as a response to the known love of God for me. It's not laws and do's and don'ts and, and have and have nots. The Christian life is to be lived as a response to the fact that I know God loves me. If you think of the book of Ephesians, Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about what we have in Christ. We've been given every blessing uh, in the high places in Christ. And then 
chapters 4, 5, and 6 are about how we're to live, our response to those things God has given us and that we have. Colossians chapters 1 and 2, the same, all about what God has done for us, what we have in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 are our response. The book of Romans, God, by the Holy Spirit, takes 11 chapters to declare what we have in Christ. And then in chapter 12 on, our response. Chapter 12, verse 1 of Romans, I beseech you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your lives, your bodies, a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. Oh, beloved, if I lose sight of God's love for me, something catastrophic has happened. And I would, that, would to God that no one in this room or in the sound of my voice or watching, has, that, that that's ever happened. But be careful. And this isn't a scolding. It's intended to be exhortation. Be careful. Because we must ask ourselves, as we prepare to remember how much God loves us, Am I beginning to think God isn't doing things the way I think he should do them? Am I walking around that path that says God isn't doing things when I think he should be doing them? And have I become so fixated on something that I think I must have now that I've forgotten all that God has given me and has done? It's an answer that only you can give in your heart. But the solution is to remember. That's what these elements represent. A remembering of how much God does love you. And isn't that good news? That's great news. You can say it with me. Say God loves me. God loves me. Good news. And today we remember. Will you pray with me? The men are going to distribute the elements and then we'll we'll all take communion together. But a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the fact that the demonstration of your love for us is ongoing. And that we aren't limited to just one experience of it or one sighting of it. That it is an active and constant thing as we look at what you have done the cross of Calvary, the shedding of your blood, your death, and your resurrection. Lord, today may we be restored in that single most important motivation for living this life, a response to all that you have given and all that you have done. We ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen.